Turn in your Bibles, if you will, to Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 8. <clears throat> After a little delay for Palm Sunday and Easter, we back to this a new section of um, this wonderful book of Hebrews. We'll look this morning at the first nine verses of uh, Hebrews 8. <clears throat> I'm no kind of artist at all, but I love to watch artists work. Oh, I've seldom seen serious artists, you understand. But uh, I will linger long watching some street artist draw caricatures of people or beautiful landscapes of the Northwest. I loved, when I was a kid, I loved the chalk talks that sometimes... Uh, people did in my church. I've been fascinated with videos that people have sent me of people drawing with sand and uh, in, in kind of wonderful ways that I don't understand. What I love about watching people as they draw is that I can't immediately figure out what they're doing. With great care, they will deliberately make some marks, some lines here and there, some sweeping strokes perhaps, Obviously not just random marks, but giving no clue as to what's on their mind. And so we watch. And then before long, with just a few crucial strokes, suddenly appears the point of what they're doing, which had been carefully designed while still mysterious to me. I think the book of Hebrews is a bit like that. We have some little drawings developed, seemingly out of nowhere. In chapter 1, this wonderful little statement appears about God revealing himself in a son. Then in chapter 2, uh, Psalm 8 comes up about uh, the son of man who's uh, going to be given uh, a rule over the entire world. A little later, there's a discussion of the Sabbath that clearly is, has something to do with more than one day in seven then recently, suddenly, the, uh, uh, an old uh, character from ancient days, Melchizedek, is brought up. Mentioned, it's mentioned seldom in the scripture. All these pieces have been sketched out, but they don't automatically all fit together very well. They're marks on a page. Until today, when the Spirit begins to picture a new covenant, a promise given to Jeremiah centuries ago, this concept of a new covenant quickly begins to pull all these pieces together, and God's great picture starts to make sense. In fact, that's how our text begins. The point of what we're saying is this. That's always what I want to see. What's the point? Let me read it. Hebrews 8, verses 1 to 9. The point of what we're saying is this. We do have such a great high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven and who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not by man. Every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices, and so it was necessary for this one also to have something to offer. If he were on earth, he would not... Be a priest, for there are clearly men, for there are already men who offer gifts prescribed by the law. They serve in a sanctuary that is a copy and shadow of what is in heaven. 
This is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle, see to it, that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. But the ministry, but the ministry, but the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is a mediator is superior to the old one. And it is founded on better promises. For if there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. But God found fault with the people and said, The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them, out of the, took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they did not remain faithful to my covenant, and I turned away from them, declares the Lord." We'll stop there. There are two ways to um, make a case for something. You can bring in a lot of uh, details, and then you can propose an answer that brings meaning to them all. Here's the point of it all. Or you can set forth a principle and then begin to unpack the implications that support it and that prove it to be true. I think we, in our Western culture, tend to like the idea of setting forth the principle and then thinking about the implications of it. So that's what I want to do this morning. And in order to do that, we have to start with the second part and come back to the first. So we'll look at verses 6 to 9 first, and then we'll come back to verses 1 to 5. Two points. The first is, in verse 6 to 9, God has changed the way he deals with us. God has changed the way he deals with us. We're talking here about God's covenant, about a new covenant. So perhaps we ought to begin by defining what we mean by covenant. That's one of those religious words that nobody defines. It kind of shows up, covenant something church or whatever. But what is, a co- what is this about covenant? Westminster Confession of Faith has a, a good statement about it. I'll just paraphrase it, if you don't mind. It says, the distance between God and us is so great... That though we owe him obedience as our creator, we could never really know or enjoy him unless he stooped down to our level, which he has done in making a covenant with us. In other words, God is so great and we are so small that God had to stoop down to establish a way for us to deal with him. So God made a solemn agreement with us that defines how God promises to deal with us and spells out what he expects from us in return. God's covenant amounts to the ground rules for our relationship to him. And in the coming of Jesus, God has established a new covenant. He has changed the way he deals with us because of Jesus. Of course, the new covenant presumes there was an old one. So what was that? Well, verse 9 identifies it as the covenant God made with Israel at Mount Sinai after he brought them out of Egypt. In other words, that's the law of Moses, which we find in the Old Testament, especially in Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy, Numbers and Deuteronomy. Now that law of Moses is a wonderful thing. It teaches us about the Lord. It teaches us things that he has done. But as we saw before in Hebrews, it was only a temporary plan. 
and it's now become obsolete. God has inaugurated a new way of dealing with us. We know it's only temporary and it's now it's been made obsolete. We see it right here in this text in chapter 7, verse 12. It points out that when God sent Jesus to be a better high priest, the law that defined the old priesthood had to change. That's what's happened. Chapter 8, verse 6 that we read says the covenant which Jesus is the mediator is superior to that old covenant, the law of Moses. In fact, 8.7 goes on to say that if there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. And if we keep reading, the part we'll get to next week, down in chapter 8, verse 13, it'll tell us that, quote, by calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete. And what is obsolete and aging will soon disappear. This is a radical truth. Frankly, it's one we don't always talk about so much in our circles. That God has changed the way he deals with his people. In Jesus, he has set up a new covenant that made the law of Moses obsolete. So what's new about this covenant? Well, my theological dictionary of the New Testament, which some of you know is commonly called Kittle. It's quite a thing, 11 volumes set. In discussing the Greek words translated new, has much to say about this particular word, kainos, which was translated new. Here's what it says. Kainos denotes the new and miraculous thing that the age of salvation brings. It is thus a key term. For God promises the new heaven and new earth, the new Jerusalem, the new wine, the new name, a new song, A new creation, the new eon, has come with Christ. In him, Jews and Gentiles are one new man. Believers are are to put on a new nature that they've been given. And God's saving work has worked out in the promised new covenant that Jesus has now set up. Newness, radical newness. And our text, verse 9, goes even further, though. It suggests that the new covenant is both newer and better than the old covenant in that it is a covenant of unconditional grace. Think of the difference between the old covenant with Israel and the new covenant in Christ. The old covenant was dependent upon people's ability to keep the law. Therefore, when they broke it, God turned away from them. That's what it says there in verse 9. They broke it and God turned away. But the new covenant is not dependent upon our innate ability to keep uh, the law, to live up to God's standard. No, God gives us the righteousness of, of Jesus that we accept by faith. He gives us his spirit who writes his will, his law in our hearts, and he empowers us to live for him. The new covenant is a covenant of unconditional grace. We see that old covenant limitation in the very ritual by which covenants were made. You may have heard about this before, but let me explain to you again. Animals were cut in pieces. uh, And uh, some of them were put over here, and some of them pieces were put over here. Another animal was cut in pieces. Some were here, some there. All these sacrifices were made. They formed a path 
between these dismembered animals. And then the parties making the covenant walk together between those pieces of dismembered animals. And they were saying, in effect, in making this covenant, may I be killed and dismembered like these guys if I fail to keep the covenant I'm making with you today. We read about that in the scripture, Jeremiah 34. We read God's words to Zedekiah, the last king of Judah, words in which God predicted the imminent destruction of Jerusalem. Here's what he said. The men who have violated my covenant and have not fulfilled the terms of the covenant they made before me I will treat like the calf they cut in two and then walk between the pieces. The leaders of Judah and Jerusalem, the court officials, the priests, and all the people of the land who walked between the pieces of the calf, I will hand over over to their enemies who seek their lives, and their dead bodies will become food for the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth. You made a covenant with me, God says. I gave you my law. You agreed to keep it. You've broken it. You've broken it. And I'll turn my back on you. You see, in a very basic way, the old covenant, the law, was dependent upon our ability to keep it. If you kept it, God blessed you. And if you didn't, God judged you. That raises some questions, however. Though Paul wrote, he who keeps the law will have life by the law, he also makes it crystal clear that no one ever did that. No one ever kept the law enough to have life before God. No one was ever justified by the law keeping. So sometimes, even in the midst of that old covenant system of the law, there was grace. God provided salvation for undeserving sinners. Now how could that be? That seems to fly in the face of the old covenant structure. Well, folks, here's where it gets confusing and yet very, very wonderful. There's another covenant There's not just the old covenant of the law and the new covenant of Christ. There's another covenant. A bigger, all-encompassing covenant of grace. It was conceived in eternity past before, before before time began when God chose to save sinners, not just destroy them. It came into play in the garden when Adam sinned. And rather than God saying, that's it, you're gone... God uh, killed an innocent animal and made clothes to cover his nakedness. And then this covenant of grace first came to the forefront in the form of a covenant, of an agreement, in the days of Abraham. God called Abraham. He was busy worshiping idols. He wasn't seeking the Lord. God called him. And God promised, certainly for nothing Adam or Abraham had done, 
God promised to make out of Abraham a great people and a great nation, and through him to bless the whole world. All that's recorded in Genesis 16. God made impossible promises to Abraham, but Abraham believed what God said, and God considered him righteous for that. The New Testament refers to that and says that's justification by faith. Then God formally ratified that gracious covenant he made with Abraham. And he ratified it just like covenants were always ratified, just like we just described. Let me read some of the account in Genesis 15, beginning with verse 9. So the Lord said to Abraham, bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abraham brought all these to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite of each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Then birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram uh, drove them away. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came upon him. And then we have recorded there in in, uh, Genesis 15 God's promises to Abram about a, a people and a nation and a land and blessing the whole world and such. Skipping on down to verse 17. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking firepot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham. There's a great crucial detail there. The animals were divided, all set for the covenant-making ceremony, and what happened? God made Abraham so tired he fell asleep. And God appeared and walked the path between the pieces alone. So God's covenant with Abraham rested only on God's work, not on Abraham's work. It was pure grace. A covenant of grace. So for all those years, after the law of Moses was given, God was still able to save people in Israel in spite of their unfaithfulness for underlying that administration of the law with its sacrifices and rituals was a covenant of grace that was dependent only on God, not on man. Folks, it's that covenant of grace that predates the law, that Christ Jesus has come to renew. Now we might wonder, well, why did God even make that covenant of law at Mount Sinai? Well, he tells us why. He did it so that people would learn how sinful sin really is. Here's the perfect standard, just keep it. No, you can't keep it. Sin just wells up and you want to rebel against it. That's how bad sin is. And he made that law so that it might drive us To run to Jesus when he appears. But that temporary covenant could never nullify the great covenant of grace that God had made 400 and some years earlier. That promise always stood. And that covenant of grace spelled out to Abraham is what Jesus has come to fulfill. His new covenant is the renewal of that ancient promise. God has changed 
the way he deals with us, he made a new gracious covenant in Jesus. So when we're saved, when we believe in Jesus, what happens? Who are we? What, how are we defined? Well, we're children of God, joined to the family of God, sons like our elder brother Jesus, but also we're children of Abraham. We're heirs of that ancient covenant of grace. Gentiles being saved. That was a promise made to Abraham. Saved by faith alone without any meritorious works. That was the promise made to Abraham. So back to Hebrews 8. What then is so much better about this new covenant? It's pure grace. It does not hang on our ability to keep it. It hangs only on Jesus. In fact, in the book of Hebrews, that's filled with exhortations and warnings. Those exhortations are never a call to try to merit our our right standing before God. They're only a call to keep trusting Jesus and not turn away, for he alone is able to save. Our salvation rests 100% on his grace, on his choosing, on his calling, on his justifying us, on his keeping us, on his bringing us to glory. God has changed the way he deals with us. God has made a new covenant, a covenant guaranteed by his grace shown in Jesus. Now this truth of this new covenant has lots of implications. And they're going to be unpacked for us for two more chapters after this. Chapters 8 and 9 and 10. But backing up to the beginning of uh, chapter 8, we're given a brief overview. And, uh, and so we want to take a minute to look at that, which brings us to our second point. And the second point is simply this. All we need is Jesus. All we need is Jesus. What is it that makes your worship meaningful? Is it the pastor? Is it the building? Is it the order of worship? Is it the familiar hymns? The way things are run in your church? What is it? What's well, probably some of all of those things? The cumulative impact of many things gives depth to our worship. So think about the struggle of these Jewish believers to whom this book is written. They're Christians who grew up in strict Jewish circles. They had enthusiastically embraced Jesus as the Savior, their promised Messiah, and they're trusting him for his grace and salvation. But what did they do with all those traditions of the law, which they had practiced for years, which, which, which made their worship special, things that were still being practiced right down the street in the temple? They must have felt no small amount of confusion. And that's what the Lord is addressing here in verses 1 to 6. He's showing them that Jesus is better than all those old covenant traditions they have known. He is a better priest than the priests that they've known for years. He serves in a better sanctuary than the sanctuary where they worshipped for years. He offers better gifts and sacrifices than the ones that have been offered in their name for years. He has a better ministry for it's based on a better covenant. All that they need is in Jesus. Now, some of those things we've discussed already. 
And some of them we're going to discuss later on in this chapter in the next chapters. But let's just look briefly at what's mentioned in these first verses. First of all, let's think about Jesus being a better high priest. That's mentioned in verse 1. But the only one detail is alluded to here, the fact that not only is the high, is, uh, uh, he the high priest, he's also the majestic king, like Melchizedek, the priestly king back in, in Genesis. <laughs> but we've talked a lot about the priesthood of Jesus. He's a better priest than those prescribed by the law because while they inherited the job, he, by God's oath, was appointed by the Lord. While their work always began by dealing with their own sins, he had no sin to deal with. While they served temporarily for a few years before they died, he doesn't die. He serves for eternity. You see, there's no comparison. When it comes to our need of a priest to mediate between us and God, all we need is Jesus. Second thing about the sanctuary in which he ministers. That seemed to be the biggest point discussed in these first verses. Well, the priest of the Old Covenant ministered in the temple. The temple was a copy of the tabernacle built in the wilderness. And that tabernacle was built according to the plans that God gave to Moses on Mount Sinai. In other words, when the priest served in the temple, it was no small thing. It was an ancient temple. God himself had designed the building. Can you imagine what a holy place this was? Yes. But compare that to the sanctuary where Jesus ministers. He ministers in the very presence of God in heaven. He dwells continually in the true sanctuary of God, of which the temple was only a man-made copy. That's what these verses say in verse 1. He's at the right hand of the throne, that is, in the presence of God. Not the reflected presence in the Holy of Holies in the temple, but the real presence. Verse 2, he ministers in the true sanctuary made by God, not a building made by man. Verse 5, his temple is the heavenly reality of which the earthly temple was only a poor shadow and copy. Once again, there's no comparison. Where's the most impressive place you could worship? Not in this building. Not in some great cathedral. Not in the temple in Jerusalem if it still stood. No, it would be to worship united with Christ in the heavenly presence of God himself. All we need is Jesus. Finally, the third point of comparison has to do with the gifts and sacrifices offered by the priests in the sanctuary. At first it seems as if Jesus might be inferior here. I mean, if he were on earth, he would not even be a priest. He wouldn't be allowed in the temple. Therefore, he would have nothing to offer. Meanwhile, every day they offer incense and they sacrifice animals and they offer the uh, fruits of men's labor, which is presented all with sacred ritual. Oh, but Jesus offered a sacrifice like none other in the history of the world. He offered himself. The sacrifice of which all the others were but poor shadows. He did not just offer one sacrifice among thousands of similar sacrifices. On the cross, he offered himself once for all as an atonement for sin. If you're concerned about the gifts offered on your behalf, that they be acceptable 
before God, then there's no comparison, you see. All we need is Jesus. Verse 6 summarizes it beautifully. The ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs, to those priests, as the covenant of which he is a mediator is superior to the old covenant. Before we quit, let's think about this a little more in the context of these original readers. Imagine you lived in their shoes. You know and believe all these things about Jesus. But your Jewish family and your Jewish friends still pack up and go to the temple. They still have the priesthood. They still have the law, the sacrifices, etc., etc. And meanwhile, what do you do? You meet with a motley bunch of people, some of them not even Jews, in somebody's basement and pray to a Jesus you can't see. Can you feel the weight of it? The Jews had all the Old Testament system in its glory. And what did these Christians have? They had exactly what you and I have. They had Jesus. His word and his spirit. So I ask you this morning, how's your faith? Will it stand on nothing but Jesus, whom you've never seen, whose miracles you've never witnessed? Will it stand simply on the basis of the word of the gospel and the reality of his spirit applying it to you? You see, we tend to have the same struggles these Jews had. We want to add some more impressive trappings of the faith. Things like the old covenant worship that they were always tempted to go back to. We want to maybe add some of that into our worship. Maybe add some things like other religions have. But this morning I call you to stand in continuity with these ancient brothers and sisters. To stand against even all kinds of religious pressure. To stand on the simple promise of the gospel All I have is Jesus, and that's enough. That's enough. I'm not an artist, but I know beauty when I see it. And folks, what we have in Hebrews is a developing masterpiece. It's difficult for us to see, for it speaks of things unfamiliar to us, things of an ancient culture. It forces us to think about the scripture as an unfolding story and it's not completely unfolded yet. And it often cuts across our own long-standing religious traditions. But, But to see this picture clearly is a gift from God. In the coming of Jesus, God has radically changed how he deals with us. Just like he promised to Abraham centuries ago. He has made a new covenant. Jeremiah said it was going to happen. A new covenant, which is a renewal, a fulfillment, an expansion of the eternal covenant of grace. So that now, 
All we need is Jesus. He is the fullness of the Godhead in a body. In him is hidden the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He is our portion. He is the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. And from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we have a desire written on our DNA to be religious. We like a certain amount of religious tradition and sights and sounds and smells and bells and such. We have to wonder if we were these ancient Jews heard the gospel and were called to trust in Jesus though it meant turning their back on all this elaborate worship of the old covenant we wonder what we would do but Lord help us to understand your unfolding masterpiece the story of the gospel that brings everything to a head and reduces everything down to the simplicity of what Jesus has done, who he is, what he's done, that you became man and dwelt among us and went to the cross and paid for our sins and rose from the dead in order to give us your spirit so that we, today, as we walk in this world, need only you, Lord Jesus. That's all. Give us grace to live like that to trust you so completely, we ask in your name. Amen.